We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined on the phone this week by regular ICRT commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening, Ross. Good evening. And also on the telephone from Tai Jong from ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. And good evening, Gavin. And tonight we discuss plans to restart a long shutdown reactor at the second nuclear power plant, some controversial local election news, and a referendum petition aimed at changing the name that the island uses to compete at the Olympic Games. But we'll begin with Tuesday's magnitude 6 earthquake that rattled much of the island but did its damage in Hualien, where it left, as we're recording the show, 10 people dead, over 270 people injured, and 7 people remain missing. Now, the missing are all believed to be in one building. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen has been busy thanking the countries and world leaders who have sent messages of support for Taiwan in the wake of the earthquake, and Tsai has been singling out Japan's Prime Minister Shin Abe, who sent a letter of condolence and assigned a specialist team to assist in the ongoing rescue efforts in Hualien. Now, Abe's official residence posted a picture on its Facebook page of a message of encouragement written in Chinese calligraphy by the Prime Minister himself, saying Taiwan Go or Taiwan Jiao. And writing on her Facebook page, Tsai Ing-wen thanked Japan for its display of friendship, and she also said that other world leaders, including Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama, as well as leaders of other countries, ranging from the United States to New Zealand had also sent their blessings. Now, of course, it's an earthquake, not good news for anybody really, but of course other countries have been offering aid, and of course Taiwan got aid offers from China. Now the central government this week refused, or basically declined we should say, the offer of relief from China, saying that it's got its own and sufficient rescue personnel on the ground. Taiwan has only accepted relief efforts from Japan. So Ross, what do you think about this decline? This is the central government, of course, declining China's offer. Well, first, let me say, uh, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are certainly with the victims and, and the family of, of those who died in this terrible tragedy. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't take very long to make this a political event. I, I think that is really sad. Uh, the government refused the aid from China, understandably, uh, given the tensions in the relationship. Uh, but the message at the time was we have sufficient resources. But then aid from Japan was accepted, and as you said, a lot of time has been spent promoting Japan's uh, aid and the message from Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. One would have hoped that the political leadership in Taiwan could have spent that time overseeing the recovery efforts instead of promoting uh, what Japan has done in support of Taiwan and looking to score some political points domestically. I, I think that's just very inappropriate. Of course, that is the central government just banning aid from China. And of course, apparently the Hualien County government and local private groups can accept aid from China and China's Red Cross Society, the Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Straits and several local governments in China have all offered to make financial donations for relief efforts in Hualien. So, Donovan, what, what do you think about that situation? The central government says no, but local governments can accept stuff from China. Well, I mean, that makes sense. But, uh, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about accepting aid with China, and this goes back to, uh, and you remember very well, the 921 earthquake in 1999. Um, and when China specifically, I mean, this is, there are thousands dead, and this is here, right here in central Taiwan, 
and China blocked international aid from coming into Taiwan, uh, saying that they had to approve it first. And I think that that has left uh, a, a very bad taste and a very bad memory in a lot of people's uh, minds, because at the time what happened was that there were international relief efforts coming in, and China would not let them in or would not approve them or would not allow them to go through their own uh, airspace. But, but Donovan, Donovan, though, the message this time was we have enough resources. Oh, but we'll take Japan. So if they want to reject China's aid, then they should have said, you know what, you people aren't very nice to us. We'll take aid from everyone else in the world except you. you know, show, show some gumption and make it clear why you don't want China's aid. And I think that we get a lot more respect than one in the morning say, we, don't have, we already have sufficient resources, we don't have a need for any foreign aid, which was the initial message. And then a few hours later, they're promoting that they took aid from Japan. It's hypocritical. There's a very specific reason they took aid from Japan. Um, but regarding China, I think that, that, that there is, there's also a long history of China basically providing lip service and providing actually very little help at all, whereas Taiwan very, very dramatically uh, after several uh, uh, tragedies throughout the years have have donated very generously to China. The aid offered for most of the other countries was pretty small and would have taken too long to arrive. It was not going to be of much help. Specifically, the reason why uh, they accepted the the aid from Japan is that they had heat-seeking uh, technology which Taiwan rescue workers don't have. So there were specific capabilities uh, from Japan that they needed. It would would be able to arrive in a timely fashion because relatively close. And so this is this is a there were very specific reasons why Japan was uh, their offer was accepted. Pretty much every other country that offered was way too far away. It was way too remote, and it would have been uh, of little help. Probably just would have gotten underfoot. But do you think this, obviously, Ross, do you think this saying that the central government didn't want the help from China, obviously Donovan made some good points there, why Taiwan didn't actually want aid from other countries, but do you think this could, obviously the Hualien County government and private organisations are allowed to accept offers of aid, vis-à-vis financial aid, no doubt, from China. Do you think this will, this will spill over in, to politically here in Taiwan? Because of course, well, well, there's the risk that the government has put itself in the box where, where the, the central government said no aid from China because we don't need it, when they should have said no aid from China because you're, you're just nasty people. Uh, that would have been a, a, an honest approach. Uh, but, but then there are going to be local governments. So the, the county magistrate is, is a, a former KMT independent. He's not a DPP guy. Uh, and private organizations. And, and as Donovan probably knows better from me, because he, he covers this, this area of Taiwan more closely, uh, Hualien historically doesn't vote DPP. It, it votes KMT. Uh, so I, I think the government should have, should have just been honest on this and said, we'll welcome aid that we could, we could use from other places, but China, you people have been really nasty to us. Uh, no, go, go away. We're busy with recovery. Don't try to politicize it. But instead, it's now like the Taiwan government has politicized it.
Right, let's leave the politics there anyway and move to another question. That is concern over a bigger earthquake. Now, we hear this all the time, but the Central Weather Bureau this week said that the earthquake has rewritten Taiwan's earthquake history as both the intensity and in number of aftershocks are higher than have ever been recorded in the region. Now, according to the Bureau's Seismology Centre, the earthquake sequence is the strongest the region has ever recorded and Centre Acting Director Chen Guozhang has said that it's not a normal release of energy and while earthquakes often occur in the area, they do not tend to form a major sequence with such strong aftershocks and earthquakes altogether. Now, of course, Donovan, you were in Taichung when the big earthquake happened in 1999, and we heard this same the same reports then. But do you think this has been f- fear mongering? Could be put into this one. Well, is there going to be a bigger one? And of course, some of the international press do write this up as the lead, a bigger one on the way, type of thing. Well, there's two different uh, two different reports. I think you're referring to. Uh, one is from the Central Weather Bureau, and they're, uh, they're I don't think they're fear mongering when they they noted that it was very unusual that there was over 200 uh, registered quakes over a very short period of time. That was a very unusual uh, sequence. Um, the, I don't think that they were fear mongering in that. They were just simply noting a, a fact that this was kind of an odd pattern. Um, you know, there was so many uh, in the lead-up and so many afterward, and particularly in that area, uh, they, found, they found that somewhat puzzling. Uh, now, I th- there's a separate report uh, from, uh, I believe it was a professor locally, uh, who said that we're entering into a, a you know, I, I believe a center. Experts um, from the Central Weather Bureau were very clear that the data indicates not only might there be uh, a lot of aftershocks, it's very possible that in the near term there will be a, another large quake. And in, in the two days following the Sunday night earthquake, there were many aftershocks, some of them relatively strong for an aftershock. And then unfortunately, uh, on Tuesday night, there was this very large quake, which was a new quake. It was not another aftershock of the Sunday quake. So uh, they, these people are working very hard. They're doing the best they can. You know, it's kind of like predicting the strength of typhoons with great accuracy. And, and sometimes the Central Weather Bureau becomes the, the subject of a lot of criticism for not getting this 100% accurate. But this is Mother Nature. It, it, and it just shows you that how preparation is, is so important, whether it's for typhoons or for earthquakes and you know, things that we as, as just individuals we could do in our homes to be prepared for these situations. Right, let's move on from another thing. The earthquake, of course, is taking up the whole of the first half of this week's show. And, of course, the Hualien District Prosecutor's Office has opened an investigation into possible negligence in the construction of the four buildings that collapsed or tilted during the earthquake. And the office says it's reviewing the building's blueprints and other documents related to construction of the Marshall Hotel, the Yuanmen Tsai Tea Complex, and two other partially collapsed residential buildings. Now, the construction companies have been asked to submit the documentation to the Hualien County government, and the documentation will now be sifted through by investigators looking into whether construction companies used inferior building materials, failed to comply with building regulations, or even altered blueprints without government approval. Now, of course, Donovan, Central Taiwan, 1999, we heard this before. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is that in the 1999 quake, I mean, pretty much 
the, the vast majority of the buildings that came down came down under two different sets of circumstances. Well, either one, they were old. Right, let's move on from another thing. The earthquake, of course, is taking up the whole of the first half of this week's show. And, of course, the Hualien District Prosecutor's Office has opened an investigation into possible negligence in the construction of the four buildings that collapsed or tilted during the earthquake. And the office says it's reviewing the building's blueprints and other documents related to construction of the Marshall Hotel, the Yuanmen Tsai Tea Complex, and two other partially collapsed residential buildings. Now, the construction companies have been asked to submit the documentation to the Hualien County government, and the documentation will now be sifted through by investigators looking into whether construction companies used inferior building materials, failed to comply with building regulations, or even altered blueprints without government approval. Now, of course, Donovan, Central Taiwan, 1999, we heard this before. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is that in the 1999 quake, I mean, pretty much the the vast majority of the buildings that came down came down under two different sets of circumstances. Well, either one, they were older buildings that were built under much earlier codes or no codes at all. Um, and the second group is you did get some newer buildings come down, but they tended to be, uh, some of them were shoddily constructed, but in a lot of cases, the ground, they were not well prepared for the ground that they were on, meaning that there was not much bedrock. It was in uh, low-lying lands with very soft soil, and so the shocks would go right through it. I, I personally went down and took pictures in places like uh, the Wufong District, what's now the Wufong District, uh, where, you could, where uh, relatively modern buildings had collapsed. But it wasn't so much that the uh, the buildings were poorly constructed. They were poorly constructed uh, considering the land that they were built on. Uh, but basically, I mean, the obviously in Tainan, it looks like there was a, a more modern building that was built uh, that was not under newer codes where there was a, during the Tainan quake uh, last year, that uh, the, you know, that, that collapsed and that was under newer codes and they should have been up to speed, whereas in the 921 earthquake, where the newer buildings fell, there wasn't so much blame built pinned on the builders. In some cases there were, but generally speaking that wasn't the case. It was that the codes were not really up to scratch on, you know, for dealing with an earthquake of that magnitude uh, on low, on the low-level low um, plains where the, the soil was a lot softer. Uh, it looks to me like this in the Hualien case is that these were buildings that were older, built under older codes, or under in an era when there really wasn't much in the way of codes at all, or they were just simply not enforced. Um, but they were not well thought out for earthquakes. Well, one of the recurring problems when these kinds of disasters occur, and there does appear to be the possibility of criminal negligence, is the cases go on for many, many years, and we get a lot of finger pointing. So you have architects, and you have contractors, and subcontractors, uh, at various levels of government officials across different agencies in, in the city or the county where the, where the incident occurs. And we see a diffusion of responsibility a lot of finger-pointing saying, go talk to the other person. That's the one with responsibility. And when people get convicted in a lower court after many years, very often they're successful on appeal. So we rarely see people go to jail 
for any extensive periods of time for these kinds of incidents, even though it's often very obvious for the reasons that Donovan identified that something wrong occurred. Uh, and if we had a guess, that's probably going to be the likelihood here. And that might be one reason why we see governments in these situations, whether it's local governments or the central government, they are so quick to announce that we've given the fam- families of victims uh, a large amount of uh, money uh, as compensation. Uh, w- within a day, they're already getting the compensation checks out. Yeah, it's 800000 if someone passes away and 250000 uh, if someone has been uh, seriously injured, and that money is a combination of, yeah, as Ross noted, local government and central government funding. Right, I believe the, the central government, the cabinet, uh, has earmarked 300 million NT in funding for people who have been affected by the earthquake. But of course, they'll continue to be affected by the earthquake for many years. So there we go. And another issue, of course, that came up is both the central and local governments once again talked up the need to inspect all buildings for earthquake risk. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, it's a sad occasion. There's been an earthquake. People are dead. But I really don't know how many. I couldn't count the amount of times that I've heard this from the central government and local governments before. Well, again, it's it's part of the finger pointing and uh, say, oh, we'll we'll fix this now. And in, in an economy and as as diverse and complex as Taiwan, uh, with, with central and local government agencies, we know from experience uh, in the time that that we have been in Taiwan, uh, this will not happen. And it's very similar to the never-ending discussion about illegal structures. Uh, on top of buildings in, in the more uh, urban areas of Taiwan, or buildings that have been built too close to each other, and, and there's very narrow lanes or alleys separating them, uh, again, in the urban areas, which makes it nearly impossible for emergency vehicles to access these areas. Every politician says they're, that they are going to finally fix this problem, and eventually they don't. Other priorities take over. It's too large a problem to, to fix. There's simply not enough trained personnel, uh, civil engineers and architects working for government agencies to possibly accomplish this task. It's very unfortunate. It's a legacy of Taiwan's rapid economic development starting in the 1960s and on through the 80s uh, when, as we discussed, codes were not as strong. Frankly, corruption was a lot more rampant in the past. Uh, so it, it's something that will occur again. We'll, we'll see this every time there's, there's a natural disaster or even a man-made disaster, uh, which prevents rescue vehicles from accessing an area where, where the disaster occurred. Uh, but this problem will never go away. And Donovan, of course, the, the Taijong government, did it actually go out and inspect the buildings after the 921 quake? Yes, they did. Um, and I remember actually seeing the inspectors. Um, there, there was quite a bit of activity uh, after the 921 quake in Taichung, um, and you know people were notified of, uh, in a lot of cases, of you know how their building stood. But I'll tell you something that actually has struck me so far uh, with this earthquake. There are two two things that that surprised me a little bit. One is that I haven't seen a lot of finger pointing at the government relative to other recent earthquakes. Um, in that both both the response, uh, I mean, obviously, most memorably, Morakot, the uh, you know after the uh, you know after the uh, flooding that wiped out the villages there, uh, the response I haven't seen uh, much criticism of of the government's response in this case, and also it, I think that in this case because the buildings that came down were older buildings, 
and people recognize that we, you know, the the country can't rebuild or uh, you can't completely rebuild all old buildings in the case of a major quake. Uh, well, there's obviously still finger pointing going on, but they're not really. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of blaming of the government this time relative to some more recent disasters. Well, there's probably some factors at play there. Uh, A majority of local governments are under the control of of the DPP, so they're not going to criticize, the local government leaders are not going to criticize the central government, even if Hualien is not under the control of the DPP. And the legislative UN uh, is not in session, so a lot of legislators uh, are traveling, um, often on the taxpayer dime. Uh, So they're, they're not here to hold press conferences and, and point fingers uh, the way they usually would. Well, I do think, though, that, like, for example, like in the last Tainan uh, quake, the, you, there was newer buildings, so there was very specific finger-pointing uh, related to that, and I, I think also that, that there, you know, and that was coming more from the public. Um, again, also with Morakot, it was a completely botched response. Um, and I, I think in this case, the that there's not any sense on any broad scale of, of either a botched response or uh, that, that the buildings came down because of corruption or ineptitude in any recent form, meaning the buildings were built way back in the day, and everyone sort of knows that way back in the day, those buildings were not built as well. Anyway, we have to take a short break now here on Taiwan This Week, but we were right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to be in the second half of the show with nuclear power, as it was once again in the news this week when Thai Power applied to the Atomic Energy Council for permission to restart the number two reactor at the second nuclear power plant. Now, environmental groups, needless to say, are voicing their opposition to these plans to reactivate the reactor, arguing that it poses a safety risk due to the long period of time it's been offline. The reactor has been offline since May of 2016, after it suffered problems to its electrical system during maintenance work. Now, lawmakers will have a say in whether the reactor can be brought back online. But again, needless to say, business groups are sort of backing bringing the reactor back online, arguing that the current reserve margin of 1.5% poses a risk to both the public and business due to possible power shortages. And Thai Power has said that if it brings the reactor back online, the reserve margin will rise to 3% of total power generation. Now, Premier William Lai has said the government continues to believe Taiwan can become nuclear-free by 2025, but he said the government will respect the Atomic Energy Council's decision about the second reactor at the nuclear power plant. So, Ross, yet again, the government's caught between a rather large rock and a nuclear hard place in its nuclear policy. If anything, the business leaders that have been supportive in recent days of reactivating this reactor, they probably just want the issue to go away. It, it takes a lot of time to be talking about this repeatedly and, and to be planning for uh, electrical shortages. So, of course, business leaders want some stability and, and not to be talking about this on a recurring basis. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, speaking of the uh, business leaders, I mean, obviously they need a stable power supply, uh, you know, particularly if you're in industries like semiconductors and uh, that, re- that, that are very sensitive to this. Uh, not, admittedly, all businesses are. I really think the DPP has boxed itself into a corner on this. They keep making contradictory promises, 
uh, in that they they they've repeatedly said that they're against nuclear power. They're phasing out nuclear power. No, we won't restart the the reactors. Uh, and then they promise that oh yes, the power will be stable. There will you know there'll be a stable power supply. There'll be no problems. And then they go on and say that oh it's going to be uh, it's going to be filled by um, <clears throat> renewables, but unfortunately renewables are not always reliable. And so they box themselves into a series of uh, into a series of corners where they, they really can't they can't have it always at once. Uh, now complicating this, of course, is that Thai power often has its own agenda, and they have a little bit of a history of crying crying wolf when. Uh, when it's been unnecessary. But last year, as we saw, the power did go out and uh, there were massive shortages around the country. So, uh, you know, the 3% that this, uh, uh, you know, that uh, the reactivating this reactor will bring in is, could well be necessary. What about the question of safety, Ross? Obviously, environmental groups are concerned that it's been shut down for so long. There are safety issues with turning it back on again. Well, the, the fact that it's been shut down for maintenance uh, would indicate that it should be safer when it's turned back on. I, I, I have serious doubts about this claim that simply because it's been shut down, it's thus not safe. I don't think the science supports that. And, and again, what, what has Thai Power been doing during this time that it's been shut down? It's been upgrading the systems and inspecting the systems and the equipment. Uh, so, if anything, it should be safer when it gets turned back on. It's not going to be more dangerous simply because it's been in maintenance. And uh, reactors being shut down for maintenance is a normal occurrence. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, Thai Power has a lot of experience, as as we know, with shutting down various uh, reactors at the nuclear power, at the three operating nuclear power plants. So that doesn't seem like a very convincing claim. This I don't think the science backs it up. Um, unfortunately, uh, I mean, these are old reactors, and they have a long history of mostly minor accidents. Um, whether or not the science backs it up or not, these questions about uh, reactivating it, uh, not being uh, a nuclear scientist, I'm not sure. But Thai Power does have a fairly poor record at a lot of this stuff. So I can understand the concerns. However, uh, up to this point, uh, the, the you know the the accidents have generally been minor, although frequent. Um, and the other thing is is that um, I think that with the the incredible amount of scrutiny on them and pressure from the top, I think they're going to be especially uh, careful on the on the safety and security at this point. Right, we'll leave the nuclear issue there and move on to some local political news. Now, controversy has been surrounding the KMT's primaries for its candidates for the elections. Now, it's fa- the party's in fact facing a bit of a backlash over its decision to choose candidates for November's local elections through public opinion polls rather than through KMT member surveys. Now, party chairman Udani says the decision to use public polls was due to what he said is the belief that it will create the fewer problems among would-be candidates. However, it did create a rather large problem when KMT Jai City Council Speaker Xiao Shu Li slammed the use of public polls, calling them untrustworthy. And if that wasn't bad enough, well, she's now 
going to seek to run for Jai mayor as an independent. Now, that announcement by the Jai official came only days after a polling company contracted by the KMT to gauge approval ratings for the party's two candidates for Jilung mayor mixed up the survey data. Now, the KMT announced that Shirley Gong had won, only to reverse that decision hours later, and then announced that Jilung City Council Speaker Sung Wei Lee had won the poll. Now, Sung Wei Lee has since declined not to run. And Cher is, of course, once again the KMT's Jilung City mayoral candidate. So how embarrassing is that, Ross? Well, the, the fact that the announcement in Jilung was botched by the party together with the polling agencies is very embarrassing, and it, it gives rise, however untrue, it does give rise to accusations that some corruption may have occurred. So... Uh, hopefully the party can address with transparency what occurred and why it went wrong. I think the the bigger issue here, and this happens with both the KMT and the DPP, is in different locations around Taiwan, the primary process will differ. And sometimes it's a factor of how many candidates are running, who the candidates are, and specifically what are their backgrounds, how much personal uh, name recognition do they already have in the jurisdiction where they're running. So it's always very ad hoc. Instead of having a fixed system that would apply for all the primaries across Taiwan, I, I think as part of Taiwan's um, democratization and, and efforts towards rule of law and transparency, it, it would be much better if both parties had a fixed process that was uniform across Taiwan. And I'm sure they would come up with lots of reasons why we can't have the same primary process in Jiwong that we have in Jiayi or in Kaohsiung that we have in Taipei City. But they spend a lot of time deciding on the different primary process uh, for each of these locations. And that just gives rise to a lot of infighting because different candidates will have different uh, they'll have motivations why they'll say one primary process favors them uh, over another. And, the, and it's very difficult to understand for outsiders what these processes are. It, but often it's a combination of uh, telephone polling with going to a voting booth and actually voting. And then the polling types will differ as well, and they'll be assigned different percentages for one kind of poll versus another, and the polls might be, uh, if the three of us are candidates, it would be how do we stack up against each other, uh, then it might also be how do we stack up against a candidate from the other party. Uh, so very difficult to figure out. I, I don't think it's healthy for democracy to do it this way. Uh, actually, I think the KMT this time has been pretty consistent. Um, they, they, you know, they've stood by uh, and renominated their um, yeah, they're incumbents, and then held uh, popular opinion polls uh, to see which is simply more popular. And I don't think this is particularly confusing or difficult this time. I think the, the KMT has chosen uh, particularly clear and transparent, although totally botched in Geelong. Uh, yeah, but Donovan, really, they're still they're still they're, trying to figure out what process they'll use in some parts of Taiwan. Uh, so, uh, so far, I, I, from what I understand, they, they've they've gone straight with just simply opinion polls or renominating their uh, incumbents. Uh, not that they have very many, but um, you know the and what I find really interesting here is that there's two sort of upshots on this. One is that it is transparent. Uh, it's more likely to to uh, bring popular and, uh, and electable candidates to the fore. 
uh, here we have uh, a competition here in Taichung between Liu Xiuyan and um, Jiang Qichun, and the uh, results are supposed to be announced today. Um, and so in that sense, it's a good thing. What's interesting, I find, is that the, that the KMT right now is strapped for cash, and membership has been weak uh, in recent years. And one of the biggest advantages of being traditionally a party member is that you are able to vote uh, or have either in part or in whole, depending on which, which election and which year, um, the uh, members had, had a vote uh, on who the candidate was going to be, and now they've been essentially cut out of the process. So that disincentivizes people to pay their membership dues or become members in the first place. So that's an interesting dynamic going on at a time when they actually need to boost that. But on the other hand, the KMT has gotten so badly damaged over the last couple of election cycles that uh, they're, you know, I'm sure they have a very, very high priority in making sure they've got the, the most electable candidates they can possibly come up with. Right, and we should move on from elections and talk about the Olympics. Yes, the Olympics. Now, a campaign for a referendum on whether to use the title Taiwan at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics has completed its first phase after garnering some 5,000 signatures. Now, organisers of the Taiwan for Tokyo 2020 campaign submitted the petition to the Central Election Commission this week and said that they now hope the issue can be voted on during the referendums, which are going to be held or may be held in tandem with November's local elections. Now, the Central Election Committee is now verifying the petition and if approval is given campaigners will be allowed to move on to the second stage and they'll need to collect an additional 280,000 signatures to officially launch the referendum drive. Now Taiwan has participated at the Olympics under the title Chinese Taipei since the 1984 Winter Games in Sarajevo and needless to say to change the title could prove somewhat difficult as China is likely to oppose it, other countries are likely to question it and of course international Sporting bodies are likely to be left scratching their heads, wondering what to do. Ross? Well, the, the decision is not up to Taiwan. So Taiwan could domestically have this referendum, let the international community know its preference. Uh, but ultimately, uh, China is not going to agree to change the Olympic moniker that Taiwan participates. So I, I think Taiwan is going to be stuck with Chinese Taipei, at least as far as the International Olympic Committee goes, but maybe the focus would be better if it was on other stakeholders to use Taiwan uh, when referring to the Olympic team rather than Chinese Taipei. Uh, I think this is actually very interesting um, in that if the referendum goes through and uh, and the vote is for popularly for Taiwan to be represented as Taiwan, um, I think that it'll send a strong message. Obviously, the IOC will buckle to China um, and will not approve it, and will only allow Taiwan to, you know, uh, uh, to participate under the name Chinese Taipei, in spite of the fact that they've already allowed Taiwan to participate as Taiwan at least twice and as Formosa once. Um, but if the referendum goes through and the it has a uh, a decent ma- a majority of the of the voters. Uh, do go for it, it's going to put other countries in an interesting position. And it's also going to put the international press in an interesting position, uh, where a lot of countries may look at this and feel some sympathy for Taiwan's plight and situation. I don't think it's going to change anything in terms of uh, Taiwan's 
um, you know, a, a participating in the Olympics, uh, because no, the IOC, IOC will buckle to China. But I do think that it has the possibility to create more sympathy for Taiwan. Ross, do you, I mean, do you think this, Donovan says this, this campaign, this referendum could be noticed globally? Do you think it will be noticed internationally or it will just not even register? Well, if it's going to be held now or you know, at the end of this year with the local elections in Taiwan, it, it won't be noticed by the time the Tokyo Olympics occur in 2020 summer. Uh, so the timing is, is unusual. Uh, and, and then what, you know, what's the follow-up? So even assuming it's a successful referendum, what do you do? If it's anything like efforts to join the United Nations or the WHO, I refer not to government efforts. I refer to uh, NGO efforts in, in Taiwan, um, protesting at, at uh, committee meetings of international organizations, you know, the, the folks from Taiwan with, with T-shirts and banners and, and chanting. It's probably not going to get much traction. I know. I, I think it could. Uh, and the reason is is that China often overreacts and looks like a like a bully in their in their overreactions, and that will actually do more to make it newsworthy uh, than the actual vote itself. That seems to be a fairly regular pattern with China. Yes, but uh, behind the scenes, years. when China's diplomats are meeting with the diplomats of other countries, uh, it's not the same bluster that we'll see from the Chinese media or official spokespeople. Uh, but but no, it's going to come down to the statehood issue and, 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 and the usual things, right? Recently, a low-level diplomat in Washington threatened war with, the United, with Taiwan over the United States if there were port calls. So, no, I mean, they, they, even low-level diplomats now apparently have some bluster. Now, the question is, was that a sanctioned comment or not? But China never backed down on it. So, I, you know, I don't know at this point. And, of course, referendums do have this habit in Taiwan of just fizzling out when not enough people actually tick the boxes. Yeah, but they changed the law, so that may... Well, less, may people, less people need to tick the boxes now, but, I mean, there seems to be some empathy towards referendums in Taiwan, Ross. Well, uh, one factor in that is when does it occur? So if it occurs contemporaneous to another election, and, and the national referendums that have occurred in the past uh, were contemporaneous to presidential elections, uh, there was this issue of is it on the same piece of paper or is it on a different piece of paper? And that made people reluctant uh, for various reasons to take the second piece of paper uh, that had the referendum question. So people only took the presidential election referendum. Uh, this fall, uh, depending on where one lives, there are multiple uh, offices up for election. Uh, how many pieces of paper will, will be on, on the table that, that a voter has to take? Uh, will it include the referendum on the same piece of paper as voting for mayor and city councilor? Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, some of this is still in flux uh, over at the Central Election Commission. Uh, so that, that, that there's a process factor that sometimes turns people off. Uh, but, but also, I, I think the way that the people supporting the referendum conduct themselves publicly and how they go about gaining support is a significant factor as well, so that people understand the issue and why it's important that they take the, that piece of paper and tick the box. And if the people supporting the referendum do not make that case to the public. People are just not going to know what it is and they'll ignore it. Anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week and I've been joined on the telephone this evening by Ross Feingold. Good night. And Donovan Smith in Taichung. 
And uh, have a great evening. And thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next Friday, February the 16th, as it's the Lunar New Year holiday. And we'll all be off celebrating the beginning of the year of the dog. But don't forget, though, to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.